hello, dark sky conversationalists. Is that what you are? Can it be a conversation if it's only one way? Well, it wasn't one way when I spoke to our guest today, Dr. John Marantine from America. And John and I have had, uh, I guess, a friendship, a relationship for the last five years, actually six years, when I began the process of trying to create Australia's first dark sky place in the Warrumbungle National Park. So in 2016, the National Park was finally designated as a dark sky place and we were able to celebrate. And a lot of this was due to the real hard work and passion that John Barentine helped and displayed. He was the project manager for dark sky places with the International Dark Sky Association and walked me through all the process gave me some tips, looked out for the areas where we might fall over with the application going through the board and significantly uh, widened my eyes to the whole world of dark skies, which is where I got involved. So uh, John is an, an historian, an astronomer, but more than anything else, he's a dark sky devotee and I had, a, had the pleasure of speaking with him today. Please join me with John Barentine. Dark Sky Conversations. Thanks. With a flick of a switch, we turn night to day and day to night. We can change seasons, actions and states of mind. Light is everywhere. Used endlessly and very much a part of our modern world. But what is it? How do we use it? And how is it changing our environment and our behaviours? A star-filled sky was once our evening entertainment, but now it's Netflix, iPads, Bluetooth, whatever. When was the last time you looked at the night sky? I'm Marnie Og, and this is Dark Sky Conversations, the podcast that brings people and science together to shed light. I don't do formal introductions, John, because I truly believe that everybody who... um, Anybody knows themselves better than I could possibly in, 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 introduce you. So I guess the question I have to have to you is, what? Who are you? What have you been doing? And how are you involved with dark skies? Yeah. Uh, I, I like to describe myself as a recovering astronomer. <laughs> if I had to give one brief introduction, who? who what, what's your story? I'm a recovering astronomer. Um, just just briefly to give you a little bit of a background, um, I. I kind of started my life in astronomy as an amateur, as a, as a pretty small child. And I have been on this remarkable journey ever since. I, I pursued that academically. I went through up to, I got a PhD at the University of Texas in astronomy uh, almost 10 years ago. And I lived in the world of professional astronomy for a while. Um, I worked at an observatory, which was a lifelong dream. I wanted to drive big telescopes. Yeah. I worked on a project called the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which was at its, in its time the biggest and boldest experiment that had ever been done in the history of astronomy. And to have had the smallest part to do with that was uh, wow. really mm-hmm. a high point for my career. And that, that in a roundabout way is how I came to be involved in dark skies as I left the academic world, because it's it's kind of small, there's a limited audience, my heart was always in trying to improve the public understanding of science, because I think it's maybe the only thing that will save the world at this point, mm. and wanting to bring to other people the same sort of, of just joy and wonder that is involved in seeing 
a naturally dark night sky and making sure that people who are here a long time after me have access to that mm -hmm. resource. That's what drew me into this. So the gateway in was astronomy. And I hope that in one way or another, I'll be involved in it for the rest of my life. Mm. I, I hear that quite frequently from astronomers, actually, that, you know, it was maybe not one necessarily one particular dark sky night or one interaction but that there, that there was, there was a time in their life that they can remember that they were just, so they suddenly realised that they were going to be an astronomer because of this experience that they had. Do you have a moment like that? I, I do, and mm. if I if I could remember better, I could probably trace it down to a day. Um, to condense the story, uh, when I was probably about five years old, maybe six. So we're, we're talking a long time ago. Um, I, I grew up in Arizona. I'm in the United States. And not far west of where I live is a place called Kitt Peak National Observatory, which was our national observatory founded in the 1950s. Uh, and it was in its time, it was really a revolutionary concept in that a government would fund an astronomical research facility to level the playing field for the astronomers of this country so that it didn't matter what your academic pedigree was. It didn't matter what institution you came from. If you had a good idea for a research project, you could competitively win time on a very big telescope. So and any, any member of the public or? You yeah. Anybody who could prepare a winning proposal. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's a, competition-based process. They still allocate time that way. It's still very much a working facility, even though it's more than 60 years into its history now. Uh, but that's here in my home state. And um, I was fortunate to grow up around family who really encouraged me in whatever it was that I was interested in. And my curiosity as, as a kid and wanting to know everything about everything, putting up with my incessant questions. <laughs> but in particular, I had a set of grandparents who were very adamant that my brother and I experience as much of this place as possible because it's home to us. And they had a, a recreational vehicle and they took us all over this state from the Grand Canyon up in the north to the border with Mexico in the south and everywhere in between. And so when I was very little, we went to Kitt Peak, this national observatory facility. Um, and I had never seen anything like it in my life. There are still to this day quite literally dozens of telescopes on this mountain that's isolated. It's out in kind of the middle of nowhere. And it's it's overwhelming to know what goes on there at night. And we weren't even there at night. We were there during the daytime. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember being so uh, impressed by this experience and the thought that people worked in this place and they did these amazing things. And I said to my grandparents when we left that day, I said, you know what, I'm going to come back here someday and I'm going to work here. And I'm sure they were thinking, and you were five you know, or six. Yeah. And I was five, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. and, and I'm sure they were thinking that, okay, you know, next week you're going to want to be a policeman or whatever. And, <laughs> and, you know, what, what kids go through, they, they yeah. have different ideas. And, and I, I started reading everything I could find about amateur astronomy and they kind of ran out of books to find to give me. Uh, and so I came back here to Tucson, the city where I live in now, to uh, do my undergraduate studies at the University of Arizona. And I became involved in research and astronomy for the first time mm. through the headquarters of the same agency that runs the National Observatory. And in my first semester here, I was invited by the, the staff mentors that I was working with to come with them to the observatory to use one of the telescopes for a couple of nights. 
And that was, that's like a fulfillment of a dream, right? This is exactly what mm -hmm. I imagined. Mm -hmm. And so we had uh, one night while I was up there, our weather wasn't that good. And so I went down to the, there's a little kind of a dining hall, library, kind of a common area. And I picked up the phone and I called my grandparents and I said, I kept my promise. I'm working at Kid Peak tonight. <laughs> and that was it. You know, I, I basically never looked back. I never, never had a thought about doing something else. Um, and it has been such a rewarding experience. Um, and also, I should mention, as a product of public education, which I prob uh, very strongly support, I think it's important to give back. And that's part of how it became my life's mission to mm. help share this with other people, because I think it's just such a remarkable thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sorry, just talking about public educated astronomers, my partner is out there chasing a brush turkey away. So <laughs> <laughs> we have these prehistoric birds that are chased in our background, in our backyard. So, so um, John, you transitioned out of astronomy, though, or do you still dabble in astronomy? Where do you find yourself now? Mm. I, I would say I am a, an extremely well-informed amateur astronomer. I, okay. I don't really, I'm not formally involved in any astronomy research anymore. I've done little bits and pieces here and there. Around the edges. I just, mm -hmm. I, I wrote a couple of books. I got into mm -hmm. the history of astronomy. Mm -hmm. That's something that's very interesting to me. I might have, if I didn't, if I hadn't gone this route, I might have become an historian. I'm really interested in history, mm -hmm. um, you know. And and here and there, as I have opportunities, I've I've done some citizen science kind of stuff and some informal uh, involvement in research. But I just along the way decided that it's not what motivated me to want to do it to earn a living. And I think there's an important distinction. Um, because anybody who studies the night sky, anybody who takes sort of a scientific view to understanding it, they're an astronomer, uh, you know, be it professional or amateur, there really is a seat at the table for everybody in that respect. So uh, I still, I like to keep up with research results. I read research, um, read a lot of news stories about it, but I am, I'm definitely on the outside of the academy now. Mm. It is interesting though. I think that there's a, there's a, tying up a few things there that um, certainly I'm surrounded by astronomers married to one, um, but there seems to be this groundedness in, in, in their approach to the world that I think is perhaps a little bit different from other sciences. And maybe it's because they look at the universe and, you know, realize how small we are in it. Um, and yet, as we'll talk about in a minute, how, how a big impact we're actually making on, on how we see that universe or how we're unable to see it, how we're being disconnected from it. But uh, people never lose that fascination for the night sky. Once you've seen it, you can't take it back. It's taking that little red pill or that little blue pill. It's, yeah, it's something you can't stop seeing or you, you need more of it in some ways. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and we're, we're fortunate to be able to spend some time thinking about these very big questions. They're the biggest questions that humanity has ever asked. And if we gain just a little bit of knowledge in our lifetime, it's just it's remarkable to crack that door open a little bit and see what's on the other side. Uh, and hopefully it changes people's worldview in a sense. Mm. Um, people often talk about feeling small as a consequence of the things that they learn about the universe. And I suppose there's 
that's certainly an element of that for some people, but I think it's empowering that we can know these things, that the universe is a knowable place and that the skills that we learn along the way as we try to understand this, we can apply to all kinds of other things. Mm. And more importantly, the problems that we face as a society that we've, you know, we're facing some really big stuff coming up here. Uh, and because the world is a knowable place, we can figure this out. Yeah, that, that's a, yeah, that's a powerful statement. And I think that's probably people like us who are, who are connected with dark skies, it's when, and we talk about it to the public that we get involved with, is that is that disconnection, that if we're not seeing the stars and if we're not asking the big questions and we're not curious uh, and we don't engage with the cultural histories, et cetera, that have come from it, what is the future? Will we stop asking questions about where we've come from? Will we stop developing amazing technologies that can get us, you know, fly robots to the other side of the solar system, et cetera? Um, you know, and the repercussions of that, really. It's hard to imagine a future where humans become completely disconnected from that, those ideas, no matter how challenging things are down here on earth, it, you know, it's often said, it's almost a cliche that, well, you know, humans are by their nature curious. And that's what uh, there's been sort of this feedback effect where curiosity leads to more experience, more experience leads to more questions. And that's how we might have evolved our intelligence over time and been better uh, equipped to survive in this world. Um, it's arguable that maybe our intelligence has gotten out ahead of us now. And that for the first time, there's a species on this planet that threatens its own existence yeah. along yeah. with the others uh, and, and, and how that could be a little too much of a good thing. I don't know that we'll ever see a time when, when people just are, are completely disconnected from this, but thinking about history again, and the history of science and how much of what we would now think of as the, the scientific method in, in the modern sense was put together almost 3,000 years ago, 2,500 mm. years ago, and, and was on its way and was sort of extinguished by historical circumstances. And it's not that people weren't thinking about those things, but they were thinking more about other things for quite a period of time in the medieval period. Uh, and so survival. the progress, <laughs> survival in some senses, yeah. I mean, yeah. differences in culture and and there is no guarantee that the scientific view will prevail. We have seen much of this in the COVID-19 pandemic mm. uh, with a lot of challenges in dealing with the public and dealing with elected officials and um, a lot of what I would think of certainly as unscientific thinking, maybe even bordering on the superstitious. Um, there, there's not always this constant forward linear progression. And I, there probably will be times in the future where things slow down a bit. I do wonder what happens though, if people are increasingly separated from nature, if it causes them to think less about how nature works and, and wanting to know those things. If we become so absorbed in our day-to-day -day concerns, things that are very focused on humans and on society and, and we lose touch with nature and we become progressively less curious about it, that's certainly a route to a future in which there just might not be as much scientific inquiry as there is right now. Mm. It certainly feels like that. You know, when I have taken people out to dark sky places and have shown them Saturn for the first time 
and they look up and I ha- and I often talk about this particular lady and I wonder if she ever heard me my podcast if, if she'd recognize herself in it but she was 70 years old and she looked through a telescope and looked up at Saturn and she said oh my god how have I never seen this and she was completely moved in that moment and yet and she said I've never really stood outside at night I've never really done this so if you've got kids that never do that and, you know, they ne- don't go through the cycle that you had where you had, you know, beautiful grandparents that were taking you to explore different places and different parts of life and nature, yeah, I, I, I feel that people won't ask those questions. They won't be engaged with nature. They're not curious. They don't see plants grow. They don't see sheep <laughs> and cattle and everything. That They just see beef and, and lamb chops, you know. It's, it's, it's yeah. Anyway, that, that's that's part of the passion that drives me to, to get people experiencing dark skies, not just talking about them, but actually experiencing them. Yeah, and I guess that brings me to how I know you, John. In fact, I didn't introduce you at all. We, we, you know, I know you through creating the Warren Bungle Dark Sky Park in um, in the Warren Bungles and Warren Bungle National Park, and that was really my first interlude with dark skies I, d- I didn't really truly know well, certainly dark sky places and the concept of the, that was driven by the international dark sky association uh, and you held my hand all the way through the process and, <laughs> and made it uh, yeah made it really a, a learning experience for me too so perhaps you could talk a little bit about it, your involvement with ida and um and the dark sky places and, and what what made it so successful i guess yeah mm-hmm can you believe that's been five years already? <laughs> oh, no, no, I can't. No. And it really was, uh, uh, for me, it was one of the, the major accomplishments of my time mm-hmm. with that organization running the program was to get that first designation done in Australia. That was so meaningful. Uh, it opened the door. There are others that have followed you. Australia has such a tremendous resource in the area of dark skies, like few other places in the world do. And I'm, I've been happy to see, you know, stories in your media increasingly talking about this and, and um, that the public is generally coming to an understanding of it. Um, when I began my work at uh, the International Dark Sky Association about eight years ago, I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I, I was I was an academic. I, I didn't have any background in conservation, any of these subjects, and they took a bit of a risk on me. It was kind of a, a, a fun story as to how I ended up with that job. It was because of Twitter, of all things, and it was because must have I been the early to, days of Twitter. It was the early yeah. days of Twitter. Mm-hmm. I happened to be following the person who eventually became my boss, and there was an ad for. Um, a program manager position and the program to be managed was called International Dark Sky Places. And I didn't know anything about it. I only had a vague sense of of what the organization was about and what it did. I knew that it was headquartered here in Tucson, which is a very familiar place to me. I figured I wouldn't mind moving back there. So I applied and I was asked in the, uh, the phone interview, could you come to Florida for a week? Okay. Turns out at the time, IDA had a contract with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission to do surveys of public beaches on the Florida Gulf Coast and Florida Panhandle. They were doing a project to retrofit lighting adjacent to beaches to protect sea turtles. 
Um, that's an issue in Australia, especially on the Indian Ocean side. Uh, turtles turn out to be very sensitive to artificial light at night. Their conservation status is already threatened by all kinds of other factors. And it turns out that light pollution is something that's pretty easy to protect them against. And so I spent days walking up and down beaches, talking to the people who would eventually become my coworkers. And at the end of the week, I had a job offer. <laughs> and I thought, I'll figure this out. This is interesting enough to me. I'll figure it out. I had to learn about conservation, which there are people who make careers in that, that mm. field. I had to learn this subject. I had to pick that up. Um, but it also tapped into some areas uh, of interest to me besides astronomy, besides history. I love law and politics and public policy. Uh, those elements make their way into this as well. And it, it fits nicely together in the context of this program, which is not only about the places like the dark sky parks, like the worm bungles, but it also has a component that focuses on communities, on what we would call the built environment. Mm. And it's, it's interesting that we're talking on what is where I'm at is still the 26th of October, just two days after the 20th anniversary of that program's first designation in 2001, which was of a city that turns out to be here in Arizona. And it, it wasn't even a program in the beginning. It was just a one-off recognition of the city of Flagstaff, Arizona, which enacted the world's first outdoor lighting policy in the 1950s to mm. protect astronomical observatories in its vicinity. And they have been doing great things for decades to protect their dark sky. So the, this city of 75,000 people, and yet you can stand in their city center. And if you're not standing right underneath a streetlight, you mm. know, kind of block that out, but you can see the Milky Way from the middle of Flagstaff. And to make a model that other people could follow and to recognize this work that had been done there for years, IDA designated Flagstaff a dark sky city. They didn't even have a name for it yet. They just said, you're doing everything that we think is appropriate for cities that want to, um, to pursue dark skies, and they wanted to recognize them for that. Well, 20 years later, there are more than 180 international dark sky places around the world there are multiple categories of designation mm. besides communities, besides parks. Uh, they recognize large nature preserves and urban situated uh, parks and protected areas. Again, we need to come at this problem from both sides. We need to protect the places that are dark, but we also need to deal with the source of much of the light that threatens them, and that's in the city environment. Um, and I'm tremendously proud of the work that it wasn't just me, it was we, it was everybody in this community, all of the people like yourself, people, the volunteers working on the nominations, helping us shape what the program turned into, helping raise the public profile. You know, as soon as we would designate a new place in a new country or part of the world, it, within a few days, we would start getting in more inquiries from other locations in those areas as they became aware of the program. Mm. And so that's really what started things going. Hey, Fred. Um, yeah, I've got here. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Uh, and and it's, it has really taken off. Um, it, it has more recognition than ever. It's more popular than ever. And if, if there's anything that I think will ultimately change the trajectory of dark skies for the better, it's this sense of owning something, of having recognition for doing the right thing and setting these examples for other people to follow. Mm. It's interesting because I hadn't sort of thought about that, the ownership of it, but you're right. It's, 
it's um so I, I was involved with the Warren Bungle National Park and I and I think that in some ways we had an easy task because the community had already been educated over 20 years of living with the Orana Light guidelines and you know that was already in place. But the places, the dark sky places that are aspiring to be designated um, have taught me a lot about the fact that um, first of all it the biggest obstacle is the stakeholders. You know, first of all, you've got to you've got to give them enough information without making it feel threatening to them. Uh, and but you're right in saying that they then need to own that. They need to. Everybody needs to own it. Every single person who's involved with it needs to feel that this is a an identity that they belong to, and and in becoming an identity, it is about you. It's not just learning the principles or living the principles, it's espousing the principles because you want everybody else to know it. And that's that's the thing that I think is, is, the, is the element that works so well with dark sky places is that it does require, you know, the, the local councils, it requires the restaurant owners, the, you know, the conservation society. It's not just a conservation group of people that can put this in place. It is, it is much bigger than that and the local neighbours and everybody gets involved with it and they start talking about it. <laughs> and as they talk about it, other people then say, you know what, I'm interested in that. What is, what does that involve? How can I be part of it? Um, and Marnie, you, you really kind of put your finger on it. It's that sense of when we were talking about ownership, we realized fairly early on in the program history that if we wanted to make changes that would persist, we really had to change hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. And parallel to that was a sense that, sure, we could find the dark places in the world on the map and give them awards for being dark, but it wouldn't give them any incentive to stay dark. Mm -hmm. And so the program really became oriented around a sense of rewarding the effort that people were undertaking and not just the value or the presence of the resources and we needed both of those things and in the case of the dark sky communities and another program category that's now called an urban night sky place so that's these urban adjacent sort of parks that i was describing um there isn't even a sky quality requirement so it's a it's a little bit of a misnomer mainly maybe to call a place like flagstaff a dark sky community they do have a dark sky but there's no reason that you know, Sydney couldn't be mm. a dark sky community or London or Paris or Hong Kong or, you know, name any big city in the world, because the thinking is you might not start out with a dark sky, but you could get there one day or you mm. could get closer to that ideal by doing things right. So we wanted it to be um, a partially a reward. We wanted it to be partially aspirational for what these places could achieve over time. Um, but we knew that if we didn't engage people in a somewhat arduous process that requires mm. commitment and pays back dividends so that they can see the benefits in their regions and their communities over time. We knew that we didn't do those things that once the initial excitement over a new designation began to fade, that we wouldn't be able to carry it forward in a meaningful way. And I have to say that um, places that have now been in the program for upwards of a decade are still remarkably engaged mm. in the work that they they don't just kind of set it aside and you know here's 
here's an award you can put up on the wall next to your others, and you don't really think about it anymore, but they're remaining engaged with the organization, with its advocacy community. They're trying to work on these goals of continuing to improve things so that it's not something that gets set aside and forgotten in short order. You're listening to Dark Sky Conversations with Marnie Ock. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. So that's just the, the word generation has come to my mind. So are we seeing in the next generation of, of, of um, oh, what's the word, advocates, I guess, coming through? Or you know, is that what's happening in these places that have been designated that long? It is, uh, and, and beyond. Um, it is the case sometimes that uh, a dark sky place designation made by IDA is the gateway for people to come into this movement. And it's not, it's not limited to IDA. It's not limited to one country or one part of the world. It really is a movement of people from all walks of life and, and all different kinds of places in the world who have something in common. And that's a vision of what the world could be. Uh, and so sometimes it, that's what it is. It's their, their country has a new dark sky park and that's a new concept to them. It's something that, that they've never heard of before, mm. but they're really intrigued by it. And then they realize where the part of the country is and they say, oh yeah, I remember visiting that, that place at some point. And I know what they're talking about. And I had no idea. I didn't know that that was something that could be threatened mm. and they, they kind of internalize that a little bit, and it becomes a point of pride that their country has a dark sky place. And then they become motivated to get involved and do something about it so that it can stay in those um, circumstances. And I am impressed by the, the number and diversity of people who are coming into this movement every year. Um, diversity in terms of, of gender and age and, and cultural and racial backgrounds um, distribution in different parts of the world. When the organization started, uh, the movement was, I, I have to be honest, it was very white, it was very Western, and it was very old guy. And <laughs> was that very male? Yeah, it was yeah. very male. It mm. was, you know, a, uh, it, it, was a, it was a concern to a fairly narrow demographic slice of the, the pie, um, but it has broadened out so mm. much more than that now, especially as people are seeing that light pollution has connections to things like social justice issues and climate change. It's, you know, it's, as I like to say, there's something in this for everybody, even if your concern isn't astronomy. And there's certainly people in the advocate community who really are completely uninterested in astronomy. It is mm. not their thing. It's not how they came into this. They're interested in one of the many other subjects that it touches on. But I think as they spend time in the advocate community, they begin to see the connections between and among these topics and how if you learn a little bit about them and you can then go out and talk to the media, talk to your neighbors, talk to elected officials about the, the subjects and you can pitch it as something for everybody, it starts to become a win-win proposition mm. in the minds of people who encounter it. And actually in my experience, it's rare that you have an interaction with somebody who's really never heard about this topic and you talk to them a little bit, you find where they're at, and you meet them in that place so that it's not threatening or anything like that. Mm. And it's so rare to hear somebody say, you know what, I hear what you're saying and I'm just not interested. I don't see myself in that. I don't think I can make a difference. Generally, the uh, response is more like, 
I didn't know. Tell me mm-hmm. more about this. You're absolutely spot on that there's, it's so far reaching that it doesn't matter who you talk to really. In fact, the in the five years that I've been advocating for, for dark skies and, and good nighttime environments really, because um, I, I, I'm not an astronomer. I can't look through a telescope. My eyes go wonky. The minute I look through a telescope, I can't see anything. So that's not what brought me in, or even though I'm absolutely awestruck by a night sky, put me under a night sky, I'll stand there for hours and look at it. But it, it is the ecology that's really got me involved, that I really relate to, to nighttime species and how they're impacted by light. Um, but you're right, there's only ever been in, in that whole time maybe one person that said, well, what, what a bunch of rubbish. I don't, you know, everybody else has stood there and lapped up anything and I could, you know, any, any bit of information I can give them. But the other thing is you said it's a win-win. I think it's actually a win-win-win because it's such an easy pollution to solve in comparison to many of the other pollutants that we've got in the world. And and I think that's the other thing that makes it very easy for people to engage with when you realise that all you've got to do is turn your, your veranda light off at night, you know, and you're making a huge difference. That's very easy to do. It's not difficult. Yeah. It is, and it has the additional benefit uh, for people that choose to become involved in this that unlike um, forms of pollution like air and water pollution, when you stop the source of the polluting, you don't have to wait years mm-hmm. or decades to see improvements. And in cases where people have been working on those kinds of pollution, many of them will admit to you, you know what, I may not live long enough to see the results. I'm making an investment mm. in the future. Um, and this is one of those rare cases where there is a potential for instant gratification uh, if people choose to become involved. And I actually hope that where we have these examples of it working successfully, and we do, where we actually made the situation better and we cause light pollution to retreat in certain places, that that could inspire people to think, okay, if we can, this is this seems small, but we tackled it successfully, we can take on bigger things. Mm. And, and I mean up to and including climate change, you know, the, the things that are really existential for, for human beings. Um, and I, I would love people to feel like, yeah, with a, a concerted effort and the right solutions and the right arguments we can go and make to people that get them excited about creating this change. And then we can show them that it works when we do all these things, that that can get people feeling good about this instead of what I sense is frequently the case that people are just overwhelmed. Yeah. We are overwhelmed by so much now and it, it's easy to feel powerless I would love to give them a win so that they feel empowered. Mm. And, you know, sorry, when you were talking about that, there was, there was this example that we had. We did a, um, a launch at the Warren Bungle National Park and we'd actually been doing talks about light pollution and turtles and Kelly, the vice president of the IDA, did a, a wonderful presentation about turtles, but she, she'd done it on all white slides. And meanwhile, the... The sky had got darker. We'd gone through sunset. It was quite it was winter, I think, so it got dark quite quickly. And we turned off her presentation to put on the next presentation, which was about black holes or something. Uh, but we had a problem with the projector and it completely died. And all of a sudden we went from this artificially lit area, very bright because it was white screen, 
to complete and utter darkness and literally it was such a, the Milky Way was right there in front of us and all these stars came out instantly and even with our eyes not adapted, et cetera, and the audience just went, oh. it was just this gasp and, and I, I said to the, the crew, don't go on with the slides. We'll just do some star, you know, naked stargazing here, naked eye stargazing, uh, not naked stargazing because that would be wrong. In a, <laughs> but naked there are eye places stargazing. in the world you can do that. <laughs> that wasn't the right venue. <laughs> not then. Uh, but it, so, and I think that's what happens. You know, like New York when the lights went out there, people suddenly yeah. start to, to realize, oh, there is a, a skyscape up there at night. And, mm. Yeah. So you, you've talked about and we've talked about what goes right with creating these dark sky places, but I'd love to hear about, you know, where people, so for people who are aspiring to create dark sky parks or places or reserves or urban night sky places, what goes wrong? What's the, what's the thing that people trip over? There are a number of them. I think first and foremost is they underestimate what's involved. Um, in the sense of it's hard work. Uh, if it were easy, everybody would have done it and we wouldn't be facing a world in which uh, light pollution is on average is growing almost everywhere in the world. Um, it takes dedication. Um, it can take money. That's a challenge in certain parts of the world. If you need to retrofit a lot of lights in order to, uh, to make your place dark sky friendly, there can be a material cost to that. So that's part of it, certainly. Um, another big obstacle is a lack of uptake on the part of the public that requires um, commitment and dedication to outreach. A lot of people are initially skeptical about this. When you talk about dark skies, they hear dark. Um, mm -hmm. Let's be honest, most people are afraid of the dark. Even um, very respectable adult humans are afraid of the dark. Mm -hmm. And you know, for a long time in our history as a species, we didn't have any way of dealing with that at night. And as soon as technology enabled it, we progressively started trying to change night into day out of mm. a feeling that it's more safe. So um, not being attuned to the concerns that people have and when they raise those concerns, being able to, to come up with good answers to them. No, we're not here to take your lights away. No, the, the, your outdoor spaces are not going to become less safe at night if you uh, embrace dark skies principles. Um, you're, you're not going to have to worry about a rash of crime or a traffic accidents or something like that. that there's a, a preconception in people's minds. It can be changed. It involves convincing people to think differently about how we use light at night. Um, it can be done successfully, but again, as I mentioned earlier, you have to meet these people where they are. Mm. Uh, you can't dismiss their concerns. You can't talk down to them. Um, uh, you you really need to be aware that for many people, these are are there's very serious concerns, and that people have real fears, but that those fears can be countered with factual information. Um, so outreach, 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 outreach. I cannot um, stress that enough. Uh, people that do an inadequate amount of that, if they make too many assumptions about the people in their communities and what their preferences are, what their anxieties are, and they don't target the outreach to where it really needs to go, that can be a problem. Um, and just a, a, a sense that because this takes a while to get done and because it is not easy, uh, there's a tendency for people to give up 
surprisingly easily if they don't see that immediate result that they'd hoped for. And I've always just told them, you really have to hang in there. As with any significant social challenge, rarely is it ever short term and rarely is it ever simple. You know, we have seen definite improvements even in the realm of environmentalism, but it has taken dedication mm. over years and that people can and often are successful uh, if they hang in there. But um, but they need to know that uh, it's it's not going to be necessarily easy for them. But the the rewards are definitely there for those that are willing to commit to it. Mm. Um, as you were saying that, I was thinking about the word diplomacy. That I think I've learned the art of diplomacy, and as yes. you've said, you've really got to meet people where they they sit. You know, um, you and I attended a conference in Scotland that's probably three or four years ago now. And I remember hearing one of the advocates for dark skies. It was, so we're all dark sky, you know, advocates in some way, either having created dark sky places or wanting to, and, or, or speakers that represented values associated with it. And there was someone in the audience that said that they frequently got opposition from communities because for them, dark skies represented the war. You know, there were periods where the lights got turned off and this was just something that they felt that they never wanted to go back to. They never wanted to have that repressive feeling. And, um, and you know, wow, that's, that's completely foreign to me, an Australian who's never had a war on our grounds, really, um, and never had my, you know, the, the light, to, the right to light taken away from me. Um, right. Mm, so that, and, and how do how do we deal with similar concerns? Maybe not about having light taken away, but about never having light offered. Mm. Uh, and I'm thinking about the developing parts of the world, especially in Africa. Mm. Um, there are some real serious cultural sensitivities there. Just like I would never tell anybody if I encountered somebody in in Britain who said. I don't like what this represents because it reminds me too much of a painful time in our past. I would never dismiss that. Uh, it would take some creative thinking to how you could turn that story into a good one um, and recognizing what people went through. And again, not downplaying the seriousness of their concerns. Sometimes I think we just got stuck with unfortunate language. Dark has such mm -hmm. poor connotations. Uh, and in, in certain parts of the world, in the process of managing the Dark Sky Places program, um, I was asked in a couple of cases whether people in the local languages could use substitute terms. In Germany, for example, they, they call them starry parks or starry sky parks rather than dark sky parks, especially in Eastern Germany, because if you look at the map of the earth at night, the Eastern half of Germany is not as brightly lit as the West. And that is a relic of underdevelopment due to communism. So the German word for dark is actually something of an epithet mm. in Eastern Germany. And we said, oh, no, we don't, we, we don't want to force something on you if it's going to have that. Or here in Arizona, we have a tribe of indigenous Americans who became a dark sky community in 2015. And they said, do you mind if we not use the word dark? Because in our language, its connotation means death. Oh. And mm. I didn't know that. And mm. I thought, you know what, for the same reasons, 
Um, yes, they, so they they talk about night sky. They rather than starry sky, they say night sky instead of dark sky, and it's it's understood what that means in their language. So that's even the the language or the cultural aspect is something where we have to meet people where they're at, and understand where their concerns come from, especially if it if it makes them feel pain. Mm. Uh, or or anxiety about where their condition is in life. And we certainly don't want to be seen as taking anything away from people. We have a tendency in the West, driving a lot of the technological advancement in the world to tell people, we know what's best because we've worked out those things and here they are and we encourage you to adopt this. And that may not be the right thing for everybody. So if a country in Africa wants to do its lighting in a way that, you know, we might not think is best from our position here in the West, as it impacts dark skies, we have to recognize their sovereignty and their ability to make the decisions for themselves. We can't be the ones that come in and tell them everything that they need to do because we're the ones with all the right answers. Rather, I think we have to lead them, hopefully, to make the best decisions for themselves. We need to create mm. that space and make sure that they have the information. And sometimes that means that they're going to make decisions that we don't like. But I think it's the only possibly fair way to approach this work in certain kind of parts of the world. Well, we've made those errors. You know, we've made mistakes. We've adopted technologies that not necessarily sure. been the right things and um, we can only learn from them. And sometimes it's a bit, it, it is, I have had people say, well, you know, why can't we just learn from other people's experiences? But we don't seem to do that very well. We... <laughs> no, and it's it's not always a good analogy, right? We, no. we think we have a good model and we find out that it's it's more difficult in the details than we thought it was. That I'm really a believer in that that theory that knowledge is power. The more that you know, the more you can figure things out. And it's back to that sense of, you know, nature is this knowable place. But I think even threading the needle with some of these social questions is similar and knowledge is power. So the more correct factual information that we can put out there mm. um, will empower people to make better decisions. And I think in the long run, they might end up seeing it our way and say, you know what, maybe we should be careful about how we apply all this light. Maybe, you know, in Africa, we want to build up an astrotourism uh, industry. Mm. And so we need to protect the very resource that the tourists are coming to see. Um, let them make those decisions. Mm. And what we can do is, is be a source of information, be a source of support. Um, but ultimately, as we talked about before, with that sense of ownership, people have to own these decisions. They have mm. to do what's right for them. Mm. I would add to that be a, a a model as well, a role model. So if we're if we're modeling good lighting and sure. you know, yeah, yeah. I, I I in fact I was talking to Tim, one of the originators of the IDA, and mm -hmm. uh, I said I remember saying to him I was always surprised at the number of astronomers' houses that I went to, who would be inflamed by the fact that there were streetlights going through their you know their town or whatever. Uh, but yet they had every outdoor light on all night long. So, you know, if you want dark skies then you have to live by the principles as well. Lead yeah. by example. Mm -hmm. So, um, and just probably rounding this all up, but you're talking about um, technologies and this is a very inflaming topic as well, but these satellite constellations and, oh boy, you know, we really are inflicting our technologies on the whole globe. Um, 
I'll let you say as much or as little about that as you you want to. I know you 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 you're following it and involved with many of the committees that are pre, yeah researching the impacts. Oh. Mm. We are changing the world so quickly right now, more in in our own time than has ever been the case in the past. And here's another frontier that we're expanding to, which is the use of space. It's not entirely new. You know, we've been putting up satellites for more than 60 years. But for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with this, there is now an effort underway to launch literally thousands up to perhaps 100,000 satellites into orbit around the Earth in this decade to provide broadband internet connectivity, among other services, to much of the world. And this reminds me a bit of what we were just talking about with uh, how we do lighting in economies that are still developing and wanting to be very careful about how we frame these arguments. Um, There certainly are good reasons to want to help people in underserved parts of the world gain access to all this information, because I just said knowledge is power. But if you can't access the information, that's keeping some of the power away from you. And so we're in this conundrum because the satellite presence in the night sky is changing the night sky. I can't underscore that enough. It's not just a case of it's exciting when you see the International Space Station fly over your city and and you can you can legitimately be excited about that. I am whenever I see it. Mm. But, you know, looking at the potential for at any given instant in time, there may be dozens or perhaps a hundred or more moving objects in your sky that are just this constant reminder of humans' impact on this otherwise natural space. And what's that that is doing to our perception of things? What does it do to people who have cultural or religious needs to in- include the night sky in their practices? They don't have a seat at the table where these decisions are being made. And I think that the watchword that's coming out of all of this is caution. As with a lot of new technologies, we tend to rush into adopting them before we really understand their implications. So I think in this next decade, uh, as this subject is is increasingly important, um, the, the road we have to determine the course of is, how do we enable commerce in space? How do we bring broadband internet connectivity to the poorest people in the world without damaging a resource that has loomed large in human culture since nearly as long as there were humans. Can we do all of those things? And I think right now we're not equipped to handle it very well. And for me, this is rapidly becoming one of the biggest challenges in the night sky and astronomy in the history of humanity. And unless we change course, we may find ourselves at the end of the decade um, bewildered by the scale of the change that has taken place. Mm. And there doesn't seem to be any laws or any stop button at the moment. There's no, it's. mm. There's no pressure relief valve. And Mm. even though there are laws that govern the use of outer space, the international legal framework the cooperation between countries that was intended to make it possible to use space in a way that's safe for all the participants is more than 50 years old and was written before humans walked on the moon. 
and and really you you read that treaty now and the subtext of it is who's going to reach the moon first will it be the americans or the soviets mm. it has absolutely no forward view that could envision something like this phenomenon of these you know tens of thousands of satellites orbiting the earth and i think it is just not equipped very well the way we manage this resource right now just cannot handle this new use of space and I really hope that this prompts a re-examination of that agreement that the, mm. the countries of the world made to cooperate and use this space. Uh, and also that it serves as a bit of a warning for the future, because of course, as technology continues to evolve, there are future uses of space that we can't even envision right now. Mm. But we're gonna have to deal with the problems as they eventually develop. Yeah, well, there's all the questions about mining asteroids and you know, jumping off the moon to Mars, etc. That's right. Mm. It's a it's a, a brave new world. Mm. Exciting one. So, John, I'm going to round it up now. But um, the final question really is: is what are you doing now? What's your yeah? What what's your your mission now? Well, it has been an interesting past few months or maybe a year, year and a half. Um, like a lot of people, uh, the, the, the phenomenon of the COVID pandemic really got me to thinking about life and work and career and what those things mean and a sense of personal mission in life. Um, and I, I decided to leave the International Dark Sky Association um, just recently after eight years there, and it was not an easy decision to make. I bet it wasn't. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Not at all. Uh, it was. It was a very uh, thought through decision. Um, I am very much still an advocate. I support what the organization does, and I'm going to continue to be a supporter and continue to work with people in those areas. What I have done is I have started an environmental consultancy here in the U.S. that focuses on dark skies, mainly because. There really isn't something like that anywhere in the world right now. And there are very few people who have the inclination and the expertise to do that kind of work. But there's an increasing demand for it. People want expert assistance uh, in whether it's uh, setting a, a public uh, lighting policy for their community, a private policy for their, their corporate campus or their educational institution or any other kind of situation where you would have a lot of facilities that have outdoor lighting. And they need help navigating that. Some of them want to become certified as international dark sky places with IDA. And I happen to know something about that. Hmm. Uh, and it's it's off to a surprisingly favorable start. Uh, you know, I when I jumped off the cliff, I really didn't know what I was getting into. Uh, but it appears to be promising. Um, I think it will only be bigger in the future. And it's something that enables me to continue to develop my skills, to share with people what I know to make a difference in the world and hopefully make a living at it. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's what is preoccupying my time right now. I have some more free time. I get to do some more astronomy. Uh, you know, even with all of the, the, the things in the background that haven't been all that great in the past couple of years, it's really giving me a lot of encouragement about uh, what the future could be like. Well, fantastic. And I really wish you all the best because I, I know how much you cared about, you know, getting the dark sky place through at the Warren Bungles, how much information, how hard you worked for, for me to help me get that process through. It wasn't just me. It was all of Coonabarra Brand and, and Fred Watson and everybody else involved. But, uh, no, I really wish you all the best, John. And um, if people want to look you up, where do they go to? 
They can find me online at darkskyconsulting.com. And they can find me on Twitter where I say way too much about way too many things at the handle at John Barentine. Fantastic. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time. And don't forget when the borders open up, you're always welcome to come and visit us in our dark sky places here. Hey, it was, it was so lovely to see you today, Marnie. Thank you for this invitation. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And having never been to Australia, I promise you. It's got to be, be on, on your list. <laughs> 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 we so look thanks. forward to it. All right. Thanks. Take care. Bye, Marnie. Bye.